Guys, welcome to another episode of the Liturgist Podcast, and this week we are looking at the science, art, and faith of songwriting with our good friend Ryan O'Neill from Sleeping at Last. Welcome to the program, Ryan. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you guys. And of course, as always, we've got our, uh, our, my partner in crime and uh, in many ways superior thinker, Mr. Michael Gunger. Oh, you, you jest, but thank you. And Ryan, we are <laughs> so pleased, pleased to have you. Ryan, for those of you that don't know Ryan's music, I hope uh, by the end of this episode that you will do yourself a favor and fix that problem in your life because he's one of... Uh, he really is one of the best songwriters that I'm aware of uh, wow. in the world today. And he's, he's, his lyrics are rich and full, and his voice lulls you into just just a transcendence so quickly. Um, wow! So Thank Ryan you. really is a pleasure, of course. And Ryan is a he's Ryan was actually part of the original liturgist conversation, and you're sort of a, a liturgist. 1.0 or even yeah. beta version. I am uh, I'm honored honored to have been been involved in the beginning. Um Yeah, so Ryan, I'm not sure how familiar you are with what we've been doing with the podcast, uh but we we discuss issues through the lens of science, art and faith. Um in addition to the liturgies that you're aware of that we that as you've been a part of and that we've yep. done, but uh, so songwriting, we've got a lot of we've got a lot of people out there that are creative, a lot of people that are into music, a lot of people that make music um, themselves, and we've got lots of great questions for this episode. So maybe we could just rather than divide it up so neatly into the science, art, and faith, maybe we should let the questions kind of drive this. What do you think, Mike? I've been pretty amazed at uh, kind of the popularity of the show lately. It's almost freaky. Um, but by far, this is the strongest response we've had from our audience in terms of submitting questions. So there's a lot of aspiring songwriters out there. And so we asked our listeners to sing a couple of lines from a song that they wrote but don't like anymore so we can explore that a little deeper. And you can hear those clips interspersed throughout the episode. This is Dan Koch, a former songwriter of the band Sherwood, and this actually made it onto a record. If only you could hear the beat, beat, beat of my beating heart Then maybe we, we, we would never be apart Ugh. I feel a little out of place on this episode since I've only ever written two songs And they're both pretty horrible um, But but why are they horrible, Mike? Maybe there's a place to start And also, what better place than now to show us those two songs? <laughs> oh my god <laughs> There's no recordings of those. Oh. I'm an old man, so... Well, That's I mean, I guess there's technically a recording of one, but... Um. But what makes you, the writer, think that they're horrible? Why would you have written a song that you think is horrible? Well, the first song was in high school. It's called uh, Grow a Frog. It was uh, an ironic and humorous soliloquy towards a mail-order pet that I wrote <laughs> as a gag and then ended up being, like, our most popular song from a high school band. Everyone always requested it. Um, but it's mindless and monotonous. Uh, it's more a Weird Al song than an actual song. Um, I mean like an original Weird Al song, not like a parody. <laughs> cool. And then the second song I wrote, uh, <laughs> the second song I wrote is called Song for Jenny because I'm a very creative titleist, which is a song I wrote to propose to my wife. Um, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, 
It's a yeah. I mean, it, so as a marketing ploy, it worked really well because I did get <laughs> married. But I don't know that it's the best, the highest quality songwriting. But interestingly enough, we got a lot of questions um, about how do you get over hating your own music, and I didn't mean to set those questions up. <laughs> But it kind of did. So Michael and, and Ryan, you guys are both really accomplished songwriters. Um, and a lot of people with creativity struggle with a loathing of their own work. So how do you guys deal with that? Huh, that's an interesting one. Um, for me, um, I think that it never really turns into loathing as much as it turns into just just getting really tired of hearing it over and over and over. Um, but I, I would say, I, I mean, any, like any confidence issues that I have always show up in my songwriting in some way or another. <laughs> so, so maybe there's a little self-loathing in there, uh, just a, a, a low grade self-loathing under, under every, uh, every songwriting process. But, um, I don't know. I don't really struggle with it too much. I feel like it's, uh, it's, I, I kind of, I can kind of separate when uh when a song is really getting under my skin i can kind of like okay well that I, i'm gonna work on something else for a little while and get back to it until until i hate it less <laughs> so that's how i deal with it how about you michael that's how you deal with it because you've always written good songs oh whatever <laughs> thanks <laughs> you haven't written some of the worship songs that i've written <laughs> um <laughs> i yeah, I, it's not so much self-loathing um, that I experience, and it really is a, is is a I experienced embarrassment about things I've done in the past. Like farther back, the more I embarrassed, more embarrassed oh, yeah. I am about it. Oh, absolutely, uh, totally. Uh, uh, um, but I don't loathe it because I I do know where it came from, and hopefully, yeah, I think any healthy uh, person should not hate any past version of themselves necessarily you know if like of course there are things that you regret that you've done probably or whatever but um you know you you gotta learn to love the journey on on yeah. some level to to be a healthy human being and and so you for me i have to remember that it, the songs that embarrass me now that i and by embarrass because because i've written so many it's probably because i i write a, a lot of times about spirituality, about God, about these things that have drastically evolved for me over the years. And so when okay. I'm singing really, really passionately about something that I don't believe anymore, or, you know, that I like, that I think is a silly idea at this right, point. Right, right. Um, or, or misguided or whatever. It, it's just kind of embarrassing. It's like what seeing a, a, a junior high picture of what i was super passionate about that haircut and i thought i was so cool no that's exactly you know? that's like the perfect comparison i do feel like it's it's like looking at old pictures and be like wow that was horrible fashion <laughs> you know like i can't <laughs> believe i wore that and thought like i remember feeling so cool in that when i wore that but that's not exactly cool. and probably the probably the cooler you felt the more embarrassing it is yeah now. exactly exactly <laughs> 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 what would you how many how many years do you think um like going going back, like at what point? How many years back do you feel like you started to get embarrassed? Like for me, it's probably I don't know, like five or six, anything I've done five or six years ago that's tends to be like the true. moment. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a kind of a good length. I mean, there are things, there are earlier things that I still, you know, can enjoy elements of, but there that is a weird. The farther away 
you get from it, the more embarrassing it is. Yeah. Usually <laughs> for me. Uh, well, do, and do I you think guys ever get in like the nostalgia mode though on your own work? Like it's uh, so old it's good or so bad it's good? Mm, I, not for me. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't come back uh, into fashion yet. <laughs> That's what you mean. There have been <laughs> there have been songs and moments that I that I go back in that I that I go back thinking that I'm going to be embarrassed of and that I'm not quite as embarrassed as I thought I would be. <laughs> that's good. And those that's are, those pleasing, are good moments. A pleasing sensation, you know. Yeah. Like, absolutely. oh, that was. I kind of like that. It's not the worst. That. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I don't know. I think that's something about. There are some artists that really they don't. They like make a point. I think Miles Davis made a point of never hearing old stuff of his. Um, he just would like get done and not look back. And yeah, I, I, can't, I have I have a little bit of that in me. Like I, I will avoid listening to older stuff. Like pretty much anything that I've completed, I, I avoid listening to at all costs. Like with the exception of I don't know, like the when when I press a record on vinyl for the first time, obviously I have to proof it. And but even that, I've even had friends like, hey, can you just can you just make sure that it, it sounds right. <laughs> I don't want to hear it again. Um, cause I, I sort of feel like when you're done with the record, <laughs> at least for me, when I'm, when I finish something, I finish a song or finish a lyric, I, I feel like it's, I feel like it's, it's in a good place in my heart. And then I, I want to like, never, never have to question that again. <laughs> so as soon as I'm done, I just want to like package it up and, and send it out there and not, not really look at it again. But it is, it is hard. Like, I, I guess, I guess the, the further something is back in your history the the more like I don't know the more disconnected from it I feel so I feel like like less less nervous about hearing it or or scared to hear it like some something I've done like ten years ago isn't as scary as much as it's just like fascinating <laughs> like huh I feel like a totally different human being like I don't know who made that that's so bizarre it, listening to the mastered product has always been a, pro, a, a hard thing for me to do like I've I hardly even. I can get through it like once when it, when the master. So those of you who don't know how to make a record, like you spend all this time in production and writing and all this stuff, and then you mix it and and then you master it, and it's like the last thing. And then once it's mastered, it's done. Like right. that's it. You can't do anything else to it. Yeah. And and at that point, I never want to. I'd never want to hear it anymore. Really. <laughs> it's it's the. But during the mixing, during the production, I listen to this stuff all the time because it's constant. It's working on it while you're listening. Yeah, it's to work. It, you know, and that's, it's, that's exactly right. But once it's done, there's something kind of like scarily final about it, and it's like, well, what if I hear that now? It's only going to create any anxiety. If, it's, if I want to do anything else to it, it's it's done. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. Um, which is that why part of why I asked you, Mike, why like why those songs. You seem to have some sort of embarrassment about that. Maybe it's is it just because it's long ago? But I think songwriters um, sometimes we give up on our on our babies too quick, and we put them out before they're done, and then we think they're bad. Um, I've been trying to like not do that more and more. You know, like uh, spend as much time in the baby becoming what it needs to be before I send it out into the street. Do you have you know? like a, do you have a test for that or like a, uh, like a, a code for when, when, when something's done or. 
Well, my approach is to uh, improv once while the guitar plays and then go with that first idea. Just, just go with it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. But your so songs... there might be something to that, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> but, but your songs also seem to accomplish their purpose, their point, right? I mean, Jenny said yes. Yeah, frog, you've got a pretty uh, good track record, Mike. <laughs> that's true. I mean, number number one song in the school, and then got married out of the next one. Like, it's a pretty yeah. solid trajectory. I can't wait for number three. Yeah, who knows what you're gonna do with number three? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did get to a point, like in the last, I don't know, maybe this is like five or six years ago, where I stopped. I stopped recording demos. I don't know how you, how you approach demos, Michael, but. Um, I, I just sort of have now like gotten to a point where I know the sounds and the things that I like tracking with enough to to like just eliminate the demo and get get to the part where I'm actually like excited, still excited. I'm not chasing anything when the final product's done um, and just just kind of getting to the point. Are, do you do that or do you still demo stuff? Uh, I've done both like my demo. It's been that my demos are like constantly evolving into the actual so you're using track. parts of what you would call a demo in in the usually track. yeah okay, sometimes that's, that's kind of what I do yeah sometimes I'll start over but a lot of times by the before I put a demo down I really try to feel the right tempo or whatever because that's going to be something that stays but that you know what I first put down might not most likely is not going to last to the end but uh, something I usually evolve rather than you know start and stop different uh, sessions. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah, because I, I, I don't know what it is, but I, I felt like so many, you know, you, you demo something when you're most excited about writing the song and when you're, you know, really pleased with what it, what what you're saying with it. And then, you know, then you rip it apart and try to start over and wonder why the magic left, <laughs> you know. So I've I've sort of just been like, okay, anytime I'm, I'm going to press record, it better be, you know, I'm going to get it to a point where I'm proud of it to some extent that I can, like you said, evolve off of it and and keep uh, and you know make sure that the tempo's right and all that kind of stuff. But it is that's one way that I've sort of tried to eliminate any any self-loathing <laughs> in the in the, in the writing process because when I'm demoing something and then trying to beat the demo that's just that's one of the, one of the worst feelings and I remember I remember doing that when I first started uh writing and recording and just feeling like there's there has to be you know some other way to do this because <laughs> it's, it's never as good as the demo. Nothing's ever as good as the demo. Well, and the stuff that I write uh, that I don't hate even on in my own my work is the things that <clears throat> I iterated and revised over and over and over. The ones that I sat on the idea for three months before I wrote the, the rough draft. When I go back and read those posts, I love them. When I go back and read the things that I got like really fired up about and they may have gotten a lot of traffic or, or a lot of connection with the audience, I come across sentences that just make me feel shame because I can't believe I released it. And I think there's something about um, letting create a creative work be born out of this inspiration and, and letting that be a very free process, but then bringing in the editor and just start chipping away at that block and sculpting it into the thing that measures up to your own sense of taste. The hardest part about writing songs for me is um, if I'm genuine with what I'm writing about or if I'm just writing things for the sake of a sad song. I wrote a book 
uh, a few years ago. Um, and it was, I was really surprised at, at certain similarities between writing a song and writing a book. Uh, cert certainly a book takes a lot longer um, and does tap into kind of, I think, different, maybe Mike could have something to say to this, but it seems like different parts of the brain uh, were, were engaged somehow. I don't know, like, I write, I think we may have talked about this on the Creativity Podcast, but I, I, I like to write music late at night um, a lot of times, and I like to write when I was writing books, that's definitely a morning activity. Um, oh, I wonder why. Mike, why? Well, Do you have any well, answers for the <laughs> Explain this. There's a, kind of a two-prong action there. When The people who get up and write really early, what you're trying to do is beat your editor out of bed. Um, so the parts of your brain that are responsible for evaluating the consequences of decision of decisions and uh, forecasting failure and all those sorts of things and way up in the prefrontal cortex, uh, they're expensive. They're um, a slower to fire neurologically. And so when you kind of wake up really early and you're still rubbing your eyes and you sit down to write, which is frankly how I like to do it uh, for any first draft especially, uh, those parts of the brain kind of take a longer time to warm up and become responsive. And so you don't have your full neurological capacity to um, check your work as you create it. Uh, and I think um, the, the music late night thing is uh, working towards um, the other end of exhaustion where we're also kind of avoiding the editor a little bit. Um, we're, we're not quite as self-critical. Um, but in that more fatigued state, uh, you, you probably are more alert. Uh, your hand-eye coordination is going to be better. I mean, if you could imagine waking up first thing and trying to play an instrument well, that's a lot more challenging than pounding on a keyboard. Um, and so I think the, the higher need for an effective cerebellum might play into the night owl's musician's needs uh, more than the absolutely quiet orbitofrontal cortex that the writer is trying to find in the mornings. Wow. <laughs> I like that. That's I like all of that. Ridiculous. <laughs> but the similarities, they're still, uh, it's just, it's just decision. It's just decision. It's like, what's better? It's like a constant eye exam. Do you like this better or this better? <laughs> you know, yeah. It's like, no, that's true. Uh, do I could go from this chord to this chord or from this chord to this chord or and until one of them feels right or until the next sentence feels right it's just totally that's the game right I mean that's the whole thing it's just decision after decision that you're making um and why you shouldn't finish that song or that whatever whatever work until it feels right until it feels like it is what it is what you've intended it to be um, and I think, so I think all the, all the, I mean, again, I want to get, we're getting kind of close to what we did with the creativity podcast, but I think it's all connected. I think the whole creative work, I, I, I saw, did you guys see that? Is it chef? I can't remember. Uh, one of the, one of the movies that might not be the right movie. Actually, I think you tweeted about the movie, Ryan. It was a, about a chef. Maybe it was, yeah, there's, it, that's one of my favorites last year was a movie called chef. 
by John John Favreau. Yeah, and like, wasn't it totally about music to you? It <laughs> kind of like, was. What? Yeah, it was about parenting and and, and creativity. That's exactly yeah. what it was about. Yeah, it was, it was beautiful in every in every way. But I, I think you're right. I think it, it is kind of all connected. It's like this. Uh, this really beautiful, I don't know, I like to think of it as sort of creativity as part of, part of our soul in, in, some, in some beautiful way. I don't know. Let's have a little talk, you got some time, cause I can't get you off my mind. I know it doesn't help when I've had wine. There's a lot of questions that we got about kind of the the how-to, which I guess kind of also falls into maybe the science aspect, or there's a science aspect of songwriting. Um, but I'd be curious, Ryan, to kind of, and I'm sure a lot of people would be, there's a lot of people that would like, like to, would like to write songs, but just how, how does this work? Step behind, you know, let's peel back the curtain a little bit. What does it look like for you usually to start with an idea, what sort of idea do you start with, and how? Just walk us through yeah. that moment to when we hear it through our earphones or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I've I've learned over over the years of writing that I have a few practices that sort of help me help me uh, streamline the the waiting process, I guess, because that's that's what songwriting is is just a waiting process. Um, and what I like to do is I like to collect. I like to collect kind of everything, and that's music as well as words and uh, and lyric ideas and things like that. So basically, what I'll do is every day I'll try to you know sit down at the piano and um, whether I'm feeling like it or not, I'll press record on my on my iPhone memo recorder, and um, I, I kind of just won't think about it. I'll just play play anything and kind of randomly and. If, uh, if it sounds interesting enough, I'll, I'll keep recording. And if it doesn't, then I'll stop it. And I'll kind of put away those recordings for a while and, and, uh, and then come back to them later. And I do the same thing for, for lyrics. I'll, 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 I have this, this app on my phone called um, Day One. And it's basically just a journaling app, and it just reminds you to write every day. So I just free write every day lyrically. And um, whether it's a word I like that, that particular day or, or a line that kind of came to mind or something. And then um, that's kind of where everything starts. That's like, that's like the, my little, my little, uh, my little collection, collection boxes of, of, of ideas. And then eventually there'll and what's be like... Our, sorry to interrupt no, you, but like what's... How, how, how detailed do you get in those journaling? Like, are you, is it total prose? Are you trying to get in, is, is it poetic or is it just? No, it's, I mean, yeah, it's mostly like it, it, the, the language tends to be poetic just in general, or even, I mean, I'm looking at it right now. There's like, it's, it, it, it's probably similar to just what people toss in their Evernote, to be honest. Um, Cause a lot of it is, is just like, I mean, really random words that, made sense when I wrote them and then now they don't <laughs> most of the most of the time like I'm looking back at like yesterday I'm like I don't I have no idea what it's almost done means but I wrote that down and <laughs> and there it is um and so but what's cool about it is like I I really do feel like I I, I put these things down on you know in the app and and in these little sounds in the recorder and I t completely forget about them, like 100%. Just they're gone. And when I when I go back and, and kind of comb through all these little collections, they all feel new, and it all like it gives me that objective um, perspective to kind of see like, oh, that's there's something there. Let's I'm gonna try to build that out and figure out what it is. And um, so that's kind of the beginning of my songs. But I I 
I, I read this book when I was, I don't know, I was probably like 14 or 15, a friend, a friend at the time um, who was like this incredible songwriter who kind of uh, took me under his wing for a little bit. Um, he, he gave me this book and it, 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 I don't know what it is about it, but it has like it stayed with me for this entire, you know, last many, many years of writing. And it's, it's a book called Songwriters on Songwriting. It's a, it's all it is is like a collection of interviews with all these incredible, incredible uh, artists. Like so, like I don't know, everybody from Paul Simon to Bob Dylan to Leonard Cohen. Everybody's in there, and the, all it's just a collection of interviews all about the songwriting process. And what I, what I took from it when I wrote it or when I read it when I was a lot younger was that like all these geniuses have no clue where the songs come from have no clue how to get them to come out in the first place <laughs> and something about that was really really inspiring and encouraging and I think there was one I don't even know who said it but somebody said that like songwriting is a lot like waiting for a bus you you sort of you can't control when it's going to get there but you can make sure that you're at the bus stop when it does get there um, so that's kind of what all these little practices that I've that I've kind of put into place, um, like like collecting and just sitting down every day and to try to write something. So I don't know if that any of that makes sense, but that's that's sort of my approach. Cool. So so then, when do you start to develop? Do you have like a time of writing and then like a time of development every day, or how do you? Yeah, like usually, I mean, it depends on like the project I'm working on. Like when I started doing the yearbook project, which was my uh, 36 songs in, in, in the course of a year, when I did that, which was like, you know, pushing pushing out my my songwriting output like 300% what I, what I was doing before that. So at that point, then it was a lot of, you know, constantly diving through these little collections of recordings to see what, what makes sense. And it, at that point, then I'd spend, you know, hours hours and hours every day trying to be like, okay, what is, what should that first song of this project sound like? And then I'll, I'll, I'll be like, okay, this, this piano part's kind of interesting. I don't know, something definitely, it, it could turn into something. And then I'll just, I'll just kind of build it. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll take it apart and rebuild it and try to figure out the tempo and try to figure out what it's supposed to say and what maybe, what does the melody and the, uh, the, the tone of the song, is that how, it, you know, if it had words, what, what would it should, what, what should it be saying? So, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a process. And, and sometimes the lyrics come first, sometimes they don't. I'm sure you're the same way where it's like every, every song kind of gets cobbled together in, in one way or another. <laughs> and they, all, they all come out, they all, you know, they all come out a little different uh, and, and start a little different too. But yeah, I, I do spend, I just spend, I mean, especially when I'm like in the middle of a recording project, that's, you know, the, I, I probably spend an hour just collecting and doing, you know, doing that kind of thing. And then the rest of my day will be like, you know, eight or nine hours of just trying to, you know, flesh out or flesh out ideas. I think of brains a lot as kind of like information computers. And it's, uh, it's funny whenever I hear someone talk about the creative process, um, because like we're from relatively similar cultural contexts, Ryan. Yeah. And it's funny that we both start, with a daily day one discipline that then yeah. goes in and this collection mode that then goes into this revision mode that then turns into a specific work or project. You could have just worded that for me and then we wouldn't have had to listen to me talk for like eight minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you, just, you just narrowed it down. It's perfect. Next question, I'm just going to be like, all right, Mike, <laughs> tell him what I think on this. <laughs> you'll, you'll say it much better than I will. Well, I was just saying, we we if in terms of our creative disciplines, uh, I am a writer, so uh, my whole gig is how do I cut this 
thought down to the clearest, punchiest words possible. Whereas as a songwriter, to me, it seems like you, uh, you guys have a bigger responsibility to take an idea and open the possibilities to the listener. Um, and I may end up doing that across an entire work, but I do it by like, here's an idea, here's an idea, here's an idea, here's an idea. They're really punchy. They add up where um, that would be a pretty, pretty terrible song, right? <laughs> um, you, you guys are mu- poetry is very, very important in your work. Ryan, what about, do you have one of the sides, either the poetry or the music that tends to be easier to develop for you? I would say probably music. Music is, you know, there's only so many chords as opposed to how many words there are. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. So just just in a you know mathematical sense, music seems to be, it seems to come to me a little easier. Although I do feel like when I'm, you know, I'll, I'll have like an instrumental song that I'm, I'm going to write and I'll be really excited. I'm like, okay, I get a break from writing the lyrics and this should be, you know, this should take me a couple days and, or whatever. It should be easy. And then that ends up being way harder than I thought. So every time I think, you know, instrumentals or, or just music is easier than, than lyrics, I, I get proven wrong pretty, pretty quickly. <laughs> when you have to decide like, what is this song for? Like, what's the intention for this song? What does and it mean? Right. Or even just what is it a song that needs to mean anything? Well, when you have to, you have to put it in some sort of box to be like this is. You know, um, for a while because like early on in my songwriting, I I started writing songs in church. That's how I learned how to write songs. And early on, that's all that I wrote is songs for church, and so it was really easy, to make some of the decisions because it was all for the same purpose. It was all for church use or for worship, you know, response of worship. So all I had to do was put words in that elicited that response from myself, you know, or that I could imagine it would elicit from the people, the, my congregation or whatever. Um, and then over the last few years, um, really trying to write in other ways to elicit other sorts of, you know, thoughtful responses or just self-expression or just what whatever the song is, is for and in, in its intended place. Like right now we're in the middle um, of recording our new record for Gunger and, um, and especially when you co-write, you know, this is something you have to like come to terms with with somebody else. Like I write with my wife, Lisa, for most of the Gunger stuff, uh, we're co-writers on. And so we have to, at some point, come to a consensus, like, what are we trying to say with this? What are, where is it trying to fit into this album? What is it trying to be? And so there's a couple songs right now that I have two full developed lyrics that are completely different songs <laughs> for the same wow, musical really? idea. For the same, wow, yeah. that's interesting. I've never um, done that. And just ha- don't know which way to go with it based on its, where does this... Where is this in the record? What are we trying to do with this song? What are, what, is, what sort of response are we trying to elicit in the listener? What is it? You know, like, um, and it used to be simpler for me. I just, I guess I'm overthinking things these days. I don't no, know. What I would do in that situation is I would just make the song twice as long and then include all the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's, that's what I would do. <laughs> Noted. 18-minute songs on the next Gunga <laughs> yeah, record. Just all do them. it. You just do an EP of multiple songs where it's the same music but different melodies and lyrics. 
That would be really actually super interesting to have like would be. multiple EPs with the same songs but totally different intentions behind or different meanings for every song. That's that's cool. You should totally do that. <laughs> I, I want I want you to do the work for that. <laughs> <laughs> the hardest part about writing a song for me is finishing it. Most times I'll come up with a couple verses or a chorus that I really like, but I'll end up putting so much pressure on myself to stick the landing that I end up keeping the song as a work in progress forever. I try to seek perfection, and consequently I'm just never satisfied with it. Speaking of like innovation in music, there's a question, several questions actually, that mirror something um, I think is a fan of both Gunger and Sleeping at Last. Um, because there's there's this tension in music between innovation and listenability. I was reading this article that you know basically music in 2014 sounds like it's all the same and it's our fault. And it was about how the closer a song sticks to the neurological model that people have for a song, the better it does on the charts, um, and and the better it does in terms of social recommendations. And so when you look at really innovative music, uh, it's actually more neurologically taxing for the brain to process. But something that I've noticed that both Gunger and Sleeping at Last do really well is create very listenable, very innovative works. And actually, um, James Worsham from Twitter said, how do you do something new in 2015 when every possible song structure and chord progression has already been used and copywritten. <laughs> and right. you guys both do a great job of that, so I'd love to hear your secrets. Oh, man. Do you want to... You should go first, Michael. <laughs> and I'm just going to say... I'm going to copy and paste your answer. <laughs> well, I first of all, I don't think... Not everything has been done, first of all. I agree Most, with that. Yeah. Um, but most like may you know it depends on what level of innovation you're talking about like nobody's i mean there might be some composers some very avant-garde composers that are still trying to invent new timbres that haven't been heard you know with certain uh combinations of crazy electronic circuitry and instrument whatever or trying to invent new instruments there there is a there is a whole stream of music that really focuses on we're going to create something sonically that you've never heard anything like it and that's that would be a very difficult thing to accomplish at this point can't even imagine um but but you are uh on the level of where most of us operate. So even say, take this podcast for, for instance, has there ever been a podcast about songwriting? Yes, of course. Have there, has there ever been a podcast with three white dudes talking? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> there certainly has. Um, has there ever, blah, blah, blah. There's a million things that have been done about this podcast, but that doesn't mean this podcast doesn't have something unique about it. That right. we're all, the three of us have never spoken like this before. The three, you exactly. know, and had the exact insights that we've had and played off the conversations in those exact ways. That's never happened in uh, at least this segment of the multiverse. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a little, a little nugget for you, science Mike. Um, but no, like 
you know, the, so what level of innovation? So yeah, the chord progressions, it's, it would be hard to come up with an, a chord progression that has never been used um, on any stage of the chord progression. But by the time you actually put it all together, uh, it's probably got something pretty unique about it. Even though there's only 12 notes in the Western tempered scale, uh, I actually saw the math one time of how many different possible song combinations there could be. I can't remember what it was, but it, it was ridiculously high. I mean, it's like... Okay, it wasn't like 15? <laughs> no, I mean, it's Good. it's even, yeah, within our li very limited musical scales, um, the options are nearly infinite that you can do. I mean, they're just vast, the, the amount well, of what options. What percentage of those are crap? That's also vast. That's it's vast. It's vast. <laughs> it's true. But what were you going to say about that, Ryan? I was going to say. I mean, I, I think you you hit the nail on the head. Like, I, I feel like it is so much about like the fingerprint of the of the people. You know, everybody has a guitar and can play the same chords over and over. But there's somebody's going to have some sort of different slant on it, and there's going to be some sort of angle that they come at it from that just completely unlocks something about it or some combination of words or some, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful that not all of the music in the world has been written yet. And, um, and even if there is only so many notes to play around with and only so many, uh, ideas and songs, there's, there's none of those have been sung by me yet. None of those have been sung by you and, and um, millions of other people. So I feel like there's still this beautiful, I don't know, there's this hopeful uh, possibility of, of, of new from, from our interpretation of all that's come before us, you know? And I don't think it's something you can think too much about or you'll paralyze yourself. Like if oh, you imagine, try, imagine trying to have a conversation with somebody where they're only constantly obsessed with saying something that's never been said before in the conversation. Exactly. They'd be, um, they'd be silent. <laughs> yeah, it'd be silent. It'd be stilted conversation. So you just say, you just assume that you've inherited a lot of your musical ideas and traditions and thoughts and what you like about different timbres and different sounds, you've inherited it from your experience. Yeah, um, you're basically a curator of everything that you appreciated about music before you. Yeah, you synthesize it. In, and what's new about it is it's you doing something. Nobody's had, even if I strum the same chords as somebody else, it does sound a little different with me strumming it because I have different shaped hands. I have a different guitar. I strum with a little different technique and I hold my pick a little different. Everything about how I approach a guitar is going to be slightly different than somebody else is playing the exact same chords. Absolutely. So don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Unless you get, sometimes you'll come across an idea and then you'll realize, oh, that is actually a different idea. Like that is this other song. <laughs> yeah, and, that is a bad that, feeling too. <laughs> it's one of the worst as a songwriter. It's one of the worst when you find, when you like are almost done and then you realize like, oh, that's why it sounded so familiar. It's because this, it's this other artist that wrote it. Got it. And then you go back <laughs> yeah. to the drawing board. It's the worst. And I feel, I feel bad for the artist, like, because there are, there are some popular songs now and then that all of a sudden, you know, everybody realizes, oh, wasn't it like the Sam Smith? Everybody yeah, the realized Sam Smith. Yep. that it was, what was it, a Tom Petty song or something? Yeah, it was a Tom Petty song. And I think that, I think Sam Smith just agreed to pay uh, some sort of royalty f to Tom Petty now for, on that song. Yeah. But I, I kind of feel bad for Sam Smith, actually, because I would imagine from my experience, he probably didn't 
realize it. You know? No, I, I have, I have no, uh, I don't think, yeah, I don't think there's any way that he was like, yeah, let's, let's try to slip this over people's eyes, you know? <laughs> because when anybody, anybody's like, when we're talking about coming up with ideas, what that actually usually looks like when musical ideas, it is totally what you said, Mike, of picking up a guitar or playing, sitting on a piano, whatever, and just screwing around and going blah, 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 blah. You know, like you're just making sound and, and playing like a little kid. Like my daughter, Amelie, sits on a piano and she's, rec she's realized uh, that if you separate your two fingers, your first two fingers by a certain amount that, like she can hear that the, she, that plays thirds, so it kind of sounds interesting to her. So that's all she does. She holds out her two fingers and she like goes around the piano. <laughs> that's and, awesome. And plays these thirds. That's about what I do. I just know a little bit more about musical theory and stuff. But, <laughs> but it's kind of just put my fingers out. Like I understand makes interesting sounds, and I play around until something sticks out. And then you just and when something sticks out, you don't know why it does. But when Sam Smith is just noodling with a melody or whatever and something sounds nice he might not recognize us because that's from that tom petty song it's just that sounds nice that something resonates with him about that yeah it's just kind of how it works yeah exactly working on commission the great commission getting folks sold out to jesus is my mission so what do you do when you get stuck i mean we uh had a I don't know, 10 or 12 different wordings of that question about when you've had a good string of creativity going and then you lose that inspiration and you lose uh, where you were going. How do you guys escape creative ruts? I, I learned some pretty significant lessons. Like, so it started with that yearbook project that I did where I wrote three songs every month for a year. That, that taught me a lot and, and very, very fast about writer's block for me. Cause before it, when I encountered any sort of blockage, I would, I would just walk the other way and, and wait until I felt like I could write a song again. And when, when I was in these kind of like pressured, you know, I have to meet the deadline kind of situations. I, I don't know. I ended up, I ended up realizing that like writer's block it, it exists but it, it only in the sense that like it's completely you like it's a man it's a man-made thing I think I think that you you just keep your butt in the chair as long as you need to and then eventually it, it you'll you'll let yourself write a song <laughs> you know you'll you'll get through it on the other side uh whether that's you know two days or two weeks later like you, you will do it and I I used to think like okay, here's tension, I'm going to walk the other way, and that would prevent me from writing a song for months or even like a year back when I was a lot younger. Um, and I think that's more laziness than anything. I don't think that's writer's block. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I learned, I learned a lot about um, in these last few years about just writing through writer's block. Like n nobody has to hear anything you're writing. Nobody has to see it. Uh, until you want them to. And I, I feel like kind of taking comfort in that was a really helpful uh, helpful practice for me to kind of realize like, okay, so I'm not writing anything I love right now, but I'm going to just write it because I have to get through it. Like I, I'm going to just keep writing. I love music. I'm going to keep writing until something eventually comes out. And I, I don't think I've ever... I don't think I've ever like followed that and then realized, oh no, I was totally wrong. There's nothing beyond here. And what I just wrote was terrible. Like I, I usually usually end up, you know, writing a couple of verses that I don't like. And then all of a sudden a chorus will happen. I'll be like, oh, this changes everything. And then I go back and rewrite that verse or whatever. So yeah, just writing through it is kind of my, my best advice. And that's what I've been doing is just trying to just keep, keep my butt in the chair. <laughs> my wife, um, 
she actually she drove around different uh, different authors. Uh, this is like a, an earlier um, like side job that she had that was she sort of was were, were their liaison, like authors that would come into town and, and do these like book signings. And I think um, I can't remember who said that to her, but that advice of like just keep your butt in the chair as as a writer, like that's that's the most important rule of thumb you can possibly do is just keep your butt in the chair. So I, I, I've kind of, I've kind of burned that into my head. Like, yeah, if a song's not coming, just keep my butt in the chair. Something, something's going to happen. Uh, there's this fantastic book by Stephen Pressfield called the war of art. And, um, and he talks about this idea of resistance. He capitalizes the R and how it's this active like force <laughs> against artists and creators, um, and the hardest, the hardest thing to do as, as someone who's creating is to start doing it every day. Like yeah. to get your butt in the, to get it in the chair is the hardest part. And it's that, <laughs> Just to it's sit that down. Yeah. before that decision, he makes the comparison to like jumping into a cold pool every morning. It's like, once you're in, you kind of, Whoa, you shake it off and now you're in the pool and swimming laps. Once you're in the pool, you do it, you know, or whatever you're going to do. You're, but jumping into that pool every morning that's the hardest part so like oh, actually absolutely. not putting off you know i could sit down and do this now but i'm just going to grab another cup of coffee and grit you know uh, i got to i got to do the busying yourself with activities that you know that are that are unconsciously keeping you from or consciously keeping you from the work you know you should be doing right now right um, but exactly but actually getting yourself to that spot actually picking up the guitar for me like when I'm actually practicing, I love it when I practice guitar, but actually sitting down and turning on the metronome or whatever, and like, I'm going to run some you know scale. I'm going to play this Bach piece right now. That That's the hardest part about the whole thing <laughs> yeah. is, is sitting down and, and starting it. Um, but yeah, I found that as well when I was writing a book. I love what you said about just writing through it. Because um, I got, I was getting stuck for a little while when I was trying to write my book. Uh, cause I, I needed it. I wanted everything that I said to be brilliant. You know, I wanted every first, the first thing that I typed to be like the thing that it would be. And I didn't want it to be stupid or trite or whatever. So I'd kind of sit there and wait for something to happen. Um, eventually I learned I was much more productive and would get better material if I just started typing. I mean, just get it going. If it's, you know, like, as trite as it can be, it doesn't matter. As soon as it starts flowing, usually something, it'll take, it'll go somewhere. Um, and even if it's just one sentence or one idea that comes from that session that ends up getting, that ends up evolving into something else, um, just plowing through and just, just moving your fingers and doing it, you know, just starting the process is the hardest part. Have you got, I'm sure you guys have heard of the artist way. I have. I'm sure this has existed in many other forms, but she has this thing called um, morning pages that is essentially that. It's basically what, whatever, whatever type of creativity you're, you're uh, pursuing, she recommends that you sit down with three, three white sheets of paper, blank sheets of paper, that you just write out whatever and fill them every morning with whatever, even if it's I don't want to write on my morning pages, like you just say that over and over, like just keep your pen <laughs> moving. <laughs> Um, I love the practice of that. I think that that's a really, uh, 
it's a great way to like approach it because it is true. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that, Michael. It's it's it. I'm I'm amazing when it comes to avoiding doing stuff I'm supposed to do. <laughs> like it is it is a, it is a gift that I did not know I had to like avoid avoid things. <laughs> I I will I will magically you know waste like four hours doing about six minutes of work. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I don't know I think that. That might be the whole trick to success in creative work is just that daily discipline. Um, in my own life, everything changed when I read The War of Art and I decided I would do the work every single day without exception. And that's the only change I made. And suddenly it seemed like everything took off. And it's because I quit talking about how the work could happen or what the right strategy should be or trying to architect the perfect thing and just every day said, what can I do in the next two hours and did that's, that. That's amazing. That's perfect. Yeah, I, I had a similar actually experience where uh, about, I don't know, right before I started that yearbook project, I, I, I heard this interview with, I think it was with Hans Zimmer, and he talked about, which is, it was completely a random interview that I was watching, I think on YouTube. And he had talked about his time as a, before he was a film composer, he was in a band. And um, I, I guess the question must have been like, what what's the difference or how, you know, why did you get into film composing versus, versus being in a band? And he said that when he was in a band, all he did and all, all his band did was, was talk about the music that they made, you know, so they'd make a record and then they'd go on tour and talk about the music that they made, you know, a year or two years ago. And he said the difference between that and composing music for film is that you're always creating, you're always writing, and you're always you're always doing the thing that he fell in love with music in the first place, which is writing music. And that that like once once I started doing that is the same kind of thing. It, everything just kind of made sense. Like I once I focus on writing more, and 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 that being what I love about the career of music that that changed everything for me. And I, and I do feel like in some way me not paying attention to like the business of it and, and just sort of focusing on the creativity of it, I think opened up a lot of doors, uh, in terms of like my music being used in different, you know, films and TV and completely without my, my push or without my, uh, my, um, you know, my, my, my business hat on, like it was just, I, I just had my head down working on music all the time. And that has proven to be a really healthy way to be a creative person <laughs> and, and still be a human being while making, while trying to make a living doing, doing this creative thing. Oh, you are, you really are my like music, musical business hero right now. Oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> just, <laughs> you're just doing what you want to do. It's amazing. I, I do a lot of complaining too, so <laughs> I, I love I, I, I'm very, very glad to do what I get to do and I, I have to remind myself that how, how thankful I am because I like anything, you know, you just you just learn to you just learn to figure out how to complain about the whatever whatever you're going through, you just figure out how to complain about it. <laughs> I was just complaining to my wife this week about having to do so many media interviews. And uh, it, I had to say that out loud before I realized how stupid it was. Yep, yep. And that's, <laughs> that's what's amazing, you know, to, <laughs> to have family around you to be like, you realize how stupid what you just said is. Because that's basically like the, the active role of all of my family. This <laughs> is <Just> constantly <laughs> keeping me in check. <laughs> you realize what you're saying and why you're stressed out. Like, I'm just, I'm just I'll wake up and I'll be like, oh, I'm just so crabby today. I'm just so stressed out. I'm like, why? Because you have to write a bunch of songs that you chose to write, and I'm like, yeah, that's that's exactly why. 
So what is what is the most challenging part of your job, Ryan? What do you th- like? I would say, um, probably, probably like I, I don't know. Every you want you want every song to be the greatest song you've ever written. You know that's that's the I'm I'm sure you feel the same way where it's like your your newest song should be the thing you're most proud of and. I, I think when I'm about to write that newest song, I'm always scared that I'm not going to be like it's going to take a down curve. You know, <laughs> every every song I write, I'm, I've got this like this low grade stress underneath it. Like just like, oh, man, I hope I hope this is going to build upon what I've what I've been creating and not, you know, not go the other direction. Um, so that's more of just like a, a just a constant fear. But honestly, I also think that that fear is partially what helps me um, keep pushing and, and, and try to write. Better and better songs. Um, so I don't know. It's a. It's a. That's that's probably my biggest challenge is just to, to, um, just the fear of wondering if uh, if I'm gonna keep keep loving the the stuff I'm putting out. But so far, so far, I've been very fortunate that I'm I'm like that's my that's my only criteria, especially with the amount of songs that I write right now. Um, I I needed to make some some pretty big rules. Like I didn't I didn't want to release like a bunch of demos or a bunch of uh, just kind of half half completed songs so the only criteria that I have is I have to be proud of it and I, I, I even have that like on on a, on a note um, near my near my recording desk that is just like and I always check it before every single song goes out into the into the wild you know I'm like am I proud of this song and I, w- I will not release it if I'm not and that's a, that's a, it's a it's a good it's a healthy uh, it's a healthy little test for me to try to figure out if uh, if I'm if I've cut in if, if I've cut any corners at all that that note keeps me from from allowing them to be cut. <laughs> if I sit down to write something and nothing comes out, um, then it feels like maybe I've written my last good idea or something. And that fear, I think, keeps me kind of finding reasons to not sit down and write. So a question from Twitter um, that I I'm curious about as well. Jason Ropp asked, what role has the study of music theory played in your songwriting? A lot, none, and I would add somewhere in between. It pro it, it I mean like my knowledge of music theory influences how I approach music. Um it's it's actually a lot of times for me something I try to have to transcend um and not think about. I don't use theory as a like a trick to write a better song. I actually like try to forget what I know. Um, there are times I have to like, um, I'll I'll retune my guitar into something I'm unfamiliar with, so that I so that I don't have an idea of where how this should work or whatever. So I just have to rely on some something else that's less. Or I'll write a song on the piano where I'm not as competent. Or something because it's like I have to rely more on my ears and less on my analytical theory brain. Um, that being said, I'm glad I know theory. It's it's to me I've always I've used the analogy like the alphabet um, and reading and uh, you know when you're like diagramming sentences in grammar school and and learning the parts of speech and learning you know you have to learn all about these like nuts and bolts of the language that really does it, you know, once you, are you, is, uh, was Shakespeare thinking about, 
the diagram of the sentences that he was writing? Probably not. You know, it was, uh, the, are the great works of creativity relying on those like nuts and bolts? I think probably not in a conscious way. Like it helps you. I think it probably does help you to be able to be a better communicator, to know the parts of speech, to know your alphabet, to know how to spell words, just because it helps you engage that you can read better. So you can engage in the language better as you read and, and you know, you can have a, a better understanding as you're crafting a sentence, why a good sentence is crafted like it is, you know? So, but um, eventually that stuff gets, it's, it's just become second nature. It becomes something that's underneath the surface. And I, you know, I, I could tell you that a, a minor ninth is going to, uh, is going to be a very dissonant interval for a lot of most chords. Like if you put, um, you know, a, a, a minor, a flat nine on top of whatever, it's going to create some distance. I could tell you that without hearing something. Um, but I could also tell you that from hearing something, but there, there are now and then that I'll know, you know, uh, something, I hear something straight, if I'm doing a string arrangement or something and I hear something that sounds, sticks out a little bit and I can, I can more quickly pick up on, oh, that move of the parallel fifth sounded weird between the viola and the cello rather than that's, that's easier for me to pick up because I know theory. Um, and I've done ear training and, you know, so rather than like having to totally reapproach that string part and what, what exactly, why doesn't that sound exactly right? You know? Um, so I think it helps and hinders based at certain times. <laughs> I most over 99% of the time it, it helps. I think I'm glad I know it. Um, but it is sometimes, uh, the create, the whole idea of creating can get limited by, uh, if you start trying to make it into a science, into, uh, well, you can't have parallel moving fifths. You can't have, you know, um, that can actually put you in a bad creative zone. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> Any listeners completely lost, don't worry, I'm with you. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> no, that's that's super interesting. I'm like literally the exact opposite. I know absolutely <laughs> zero theory, like at all. And honestly, it's to a point where it can be embarrassing where people will be like, hey, can you give me an A? And I literally don't know what an A would sound like. I, I mean, I know the chords. <laughs> I know the shapes. <laughs> like, there's lit it's literally um, one of the most embarrassing things ever. I, I play with strings quite a bit, and so at, at, at different... This has happened probably, I'm not even kidding, like, at least 12 times, um, where we'll, we'll, be, we'll be, you know, sound checking and tuning up, and the girls or whoever's playing with me will ask for... Um, will ask for an A on the piano, and I, I have hit the wrong note almost every time and so there's like one <laughs> once or twice where I like get I, I accidentally just pick and it happens to be an A but I just I I so don't think of music or like my piano notes or um or the guitar in in chords or notes at all so it's all shapes and sounds in my head so I don't That's know I, it's it's sometimes it's a huge disadvantage obviously um because like like you said being able to access your knowledge really quickly to figure out if there's a problem with something or I, I don't have that so if there's a problem with something it takes me hours to figure out why why something doesn't quite work in that you know in that bizarre chord progression um 
But on, on the flip side, I do think that there are some advantages to being, like I will cluelessly stumble into melodies that probably shouldn't have been written that I really love, <laughs> you know? So it is, uh, yeah, but I have, I have zero, zero music theory. And I wish I did. I, I don't know how to read or write um, charts or things like that. So when I write string arrangements, it's all based on like, uh, just keyboard first, you know, a cello on a keyboard, and then I build out the tracks, uh, multi-tracking, and then I have, uh, I have a, 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 a real musician actually like go through all those parts and put them on paper. <laughs> so it's it's a roundabout way, but um, it's how I, I've done I love things, all so. of what you said except for a real musician because music. I know you were I know you were joking, but music is sound, and that is something that uh, the academy and like uh, like in music school and in sometimes in more serious musical traditions, uh, that would be the sentiment that like people that just create sounds based on shape and sound are not real musicians. And I think that's BS. Um, music is sound and music that's is true. an, exp it's a, a human experience. It's, um, it has it, the numbers and the letters and the math and the bar lines and all that are simply ways of trying to communicate music in other ways that or like to communicate mm. to to easily communicate to a viola player for instance how to play the music that you have in your head um, right that's true it's a, it's a way of of quantifying things and communicating things it's not the actual music music is not written on a page music it doesn't it's not music until it's sound um, that's true. Hmm. So, so you are a musician. So so you may have <laughs> you may have a, a harder time communicating what you're hearing in your head to people than if you had a musical theory or you know uh, ways of of writing it out and 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 communicating in those sorts of ways. Um, you might have a slower time communicating with others in that way, but which is what the you know music school is good you're that the whole thing is communicating teachers communicating to students and students communicating with one another about learning about music so it's necessary for certain circumstances but it's not necessary to create beautiful sound as as evidenced by your by your music and i i love i love why why i laugh when you say it is not any sort of derisive mockery or anything like that it's it's pure joy i'm so mad at you right now no it's pure joy because it's like <laughs> i i have a guitar i had a, I, I worked with a guitar player for years that was similar and that he you know he'd call a certain <laughs> he had like these names for these chords like he's like no that's bear claw which <laughs> i just <laughs> <Bear Claw>. loved <laughs> that's because that's like the way his fingers were shaped and he he would say it jokingly knowing that i would laugh at him but like the bear claw chord um because he didn't know what it was called or whatever but that's awesome. Yeah, I, it is. I, I'm, I'm thankful for it, but at the same time, I, I have, you know, I've, I've seen you play guitar, and I'm like, okay, yeah, that's, that's different than I play guitar. <laughs> and what's different about that is that you know exactly what you're doing and have, you know, an arsenal of talent to pull from. <laughs> for me, it's sort of like, okay, I'm put this finger here, and then, oh nope, that one's wrong. Okay, <laughs> you know, ten minutes later, I, I'm, I'm forming three chords well i mean but uh, it's all just constructs right um if i could put on my reductionist hat for a second thoughts are really just like a manifestation of physics in one model of reality and language is a way for us to transmit 
thoughts from one brain to another. So on one level, uh, speech is nothing but molecules vibrating because they've been excited by vocal cords in an airstream. But on another level, they convey information when they are symbolically interpreted in the brain. And so what you're saying in the way you approach music theory is that you don't understand music theory, but then you said, I view it as shapes and sounds. So what's happened instead is you've created your own meta construct of music that's independent from the established norm that may create a slight penalty for you in terms of communicability, but it is probably an asset in terms of producing innovative material because you aren't held back by your model. You've invented your own. I like all of that a lot. <laughs> As you should. That was that was beautiful. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of everything you just said. <laughs> <laughs> this is my wife's song to her future husband. When she was 18, she wrote this. Which was probably not you. <laughs> my heart is safely locked up tight. Sheltered from the windy night. I'm guarding it with all my might Until he tells me it's alright Until he tells me it's alright Any other questions that you see, Mike, that would be good to get to? I was just scanning. There's so many, like, amazing questions. Um, but we've covered a lot of them by happenstance. Oh, I had one I definitely wanted to cover that's not necessarily music-related, um, but just brings me pure joy. Uh, both of you guys, what's the worst day job you've ever had? <laughs> so I'm I'm really embarrassed and really in, in, and super proud of this. I've never actually had a day job, so I've ne I've only done music since I was like 14 or 15. And the reason the reason is. Um, well, first, I have amazing parents who uh, who supported me playing music right right off of uh, right off of the bat. But um, I I I signed a record contract when I was about sixteen or seventeen years old. So I I, I was just about to get my first like normal job, and then um, that record contract came through. So I I have never had to have a normal job yet. So thankfully, and also I'm super embarrassed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a million people on Twitter seething right now. If your job is a day job, if anybody's been listening, I mean, you get up, you work every day, hard. It's true. It's hard work. It's for sure. hard work. So you shouldn't be embarrassed. Uh, I, I'm gonna give mine a tie between my lawn mowing, because I have allergies, and I have like break out in hives and get bloodshot eyes every oh, day no. because of my lawn mowing job. That was rough. Uh, and then my CD cleaning job in high school, I worked for my uncle's production company and I would clean like hundreds or thousands of CDs a day, the returns oh, wow. of these production CDs. And I just sit there at a desk and like scrub these CDs clean. Those were my That's awesome. least favorite jobs. <laughs> I didn't have many though. I didn't have many jobs either. I, I got into music pretty quickly. Um, but yeah. it is. How about, how about you, Mike? Yeah, how about you? What, what, what's some early day jobs for you? Uh, well, I think we're about to be really three hated people. Um, <laughs> because when I was in high school, I started a computer consulting business, which I loved because um, I'm a technology person at the deepest level of my heart. And so I've always worked in um, 
pretty great jobs designing and deploying technology solutions at scale. Nice. And that led directly into uh, being a, you know, the current thing I do by day, which is, you know, being a CTO for an ad agency. And um, I've never really had an awful day job ever. I think now's um, the time for all of us to get some really bad day jobs. <laughs> <laughs> we owe Let's it to the it. people struggling. Let's do, we just we need to pay in a little bit. Is there anything you're working on, Ryan, that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Oh yeah. Um, so I just finished my first film score ever. Um, like literally, actually, about ten minutes before you guys called, I just put the last wow. the last couple couple notes down on it. Congratulations. Um, Thank you so much. It's called uh, Many Beautiful Things. It's a documentary about um, this this uh, late 1800s painter named Lilius Trotter, and she's a watercolorist. Um, and it's just this really, really beautiful film by my friend um, Laura Waters Hinson. And so I got to score all the music, which is the first time I've done like a feature a feature film. So that was really, really fun. Um, and then at the same time, I'm, I'm working on um, Atlas Year Two. So I, Atlas is like this ongoing project that I started um, about a year and a half ago. And um, so this is year two of that project, and it's basically the kind of the the thread that I put all of my Sleeping at Last music on lately, and uh, it's like this thematic series of music. And so um, that starts this spring, and it'll be 24 new songs. So I'm really excited about that. That's that's the thing that I'm most looking forward to right now. It'll be uh, it'll be really fun to to kind of get back into into all of those writer block moments that we just talked about. <laughs> Wow. And how's, how's it been being a dad with all this stuff that you're trying to do? Oh my gosh. It is the greatest thing ever. Like it, it, it poses no like conflict with my work day because I feel like, I guess the only thing it really is like a, a struggle I, I will hear, you know, cause I work, I work from home. Um, I have a studio here and so I'll, I'll hear Lily, our little girl, um, like laughing or playing upstairs. And I like, that, that's when it gets really hard to just sit there staring at a computer screen waiting for music to happen because you're like, oh, man, I'm going to just go upstairs and play with her because that sounds way more fun right now. <laughs> so, But being a dad has been, I mean, it's so cliche to say, but it is such a, a beautiful experience. It's, I, I don't know, I've never, I, I knew, I, I've been looking forward to being a dad since I was a, a very little kid. So I, I have been so pumped about it, but actually getting to be a dad is so much more amazing than I even thought. So it's been been a huge gift. That's awesome. Wait until she's two and she comes knocking on your door. Daddy. Oh. <laughs> that can't even imagine. That's when I had to uh, decide to get a studio away from the house. Cause <laughs> I, can't just, <laughs> I can't just like keep saying no. She's like irresistible, you know, and I have to get something done. Yeah. So uh, it gets, it gets difficult. I can, I can see that being a, a challenge for sure. Yeah. <laughs> this is so much cute. I, and I can't turn down cute. I mean, come on. This is so much, so much cute. Writing songs in your underwear is not that cute. So <laughs> when, when some little, little amazing person, you know, walks, walks in here, well, our, our Lily is only five months old, so she's not walking yet, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I can't, I can't imagine, uh, having to work when, when you're, when your little ones are just hanging out <laughs> too much fun. Uh, Mike, we got anything else before I land the plane? I don't think so. Thank you, Ryan. That's uh, great. I'm going to, I'm inspired to get back to my chair and uh, write some I'm music. excited to hear what you write, man. I'm, I'm excited to hear, uh, hear a new Gunga record. Oh, thanks, man. Likewise.
And Mike, we're excited for song number three. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're all waiting for song number three. I mean, I think I'm going to do song number three with the goal of uh, creating equality for all mankind. So we'll see how that goes. Well, there you go. I, th that's what I was, I mean, I was thinking it's going to have to be that big. I mean. <laughs> well, guys, thanks for listening to another episode of the Liturgist podcast. Uh, we're going to have some links on the show notes to things we've discussed today at theliturgist.com slash podcast. We'll have the War of Art, and we'll have The Artist's Way. We'll also have uh, Michael's wonderful book, uh, along with a link to uh, where you can get a hold of Atlas Year 2. Uh, now, I've noticed that the comments we get per episode have dropped a lot, even as our listenership has grown, since Michael and I literally never, ever participate in the comment section. But you can go there and get resources about the show. You can also... Uh, interact with us on facebook.com slash the liturgist and we do interact there a bit more frequently and we're on twitter all the time at the liturgists uh, thank you for growing this show so much listen your ratings on itunes really really help the program grow and uh, it's you guys who are creating a fantastic space for people who are trying to explore new ideas about god through the lenses of science art, and faith. So thank you for making this program a success, and uh, thanks for listening. I'm Science Mike. I'm Michael Gunger. And I'm Ryan O'Neill. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>